You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. topic today is food and we're going to be all over the place uh, uh, talking about food especially from a, a southern perspective which uh, encompasses a lot of different styles in there. With me is Liz Williams who is the founder of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum and she's also a founder of the National Food and Beverage Foundation so more than just making food she's doing a lot to, uh, to research and to record and to tell about the culture of our food and to, to prove it she has several books out, which we'll mention later, but the most recent uh, is about um, Italian cuisine. What's the exact title, Liz? The exact title is Nana's Creole Italian Table, Recipes and Stories from Sicilian New Orleans. And Nana, of course, being uh, your, your grandmother. That's right. Okay. Yes. Did, she, did she ever do a, a St. Joseph's Altar? No, um, she participated in other people's St. Joseph's Altar, but I don't know of her ever doing one herself, no. Okay, well, we'll get back to the Italian in, in a moment. Let me talk about Southern in general. Uh, there is the, uh, several years ago, okay, the, uh, a magazine had a thing and it, they, they, they would do a feature about the South and they invited the readers to write an article about what the South means to me. And I said, well, hey, here's a chance, you know, to be published in a, a national magazine. So one Saturday I sat down with a, a pad and a pen when people still use pads and pens, okay? To start writing about what the South means to me. And then I just sat there and I realized that the South really didn't mean that much to me, okay? I mean, <laughs> okay, I mean you, you know, if they have asked me, what does New Orleans mean to you? I mean, uh-huh. I could have gone on and on. Or what does Louisiana mean to me? Could have gone on and on, okay? But I just kind of realize living here, you, I don't know, you just look at that feeling of the rest of the South, you know, like who wins the, the Iron Bowl between Auburn and Alabama? It just says, no, it's important to other places. Okay. But all of that aside, what would you describe as being typical, like Southern cuisine? So I think Southern cuisine in general is um, rural cuisine. I think that the South is now in in the 21st century full of a few um, major metropolitan areas, but in general, the South has developed its food as a a rural agricultural area of the country. So it means lots of vegetables. It means um, beans and rice. It means a lot of corn. Uh, and uh, it also means a lot of pork. Um, so those are things that I think are really key to what we eat in the South. Um, obviously, today we eat pizza and we eat uh, frozen food and all kinds of other things. And the South over the years has become populated by um, many immigrants. And so that changes the food. But in general, it's often fried. 
I think that's a very African um, influence on our food uh, to have the food be fried. Beans are, are native to um, the Americas and the peas were native to, or, or were, pe were available in um, Africa. So the idea of pairing rice and beans is something that um, I think is very, very African. And you see that everywhere, lots of things, whether it's Hoppin' John or uh, jambalaya, we do that a lot. We have a lot of rice dishes. And um, obviously corn, uh, whether it's grits or cornbread or hoe cakes or whatever that might might bring us. And getting back to the like Caribbean rice and bean dishes aren't like our red beans and rice. I mean, it's more rice than beans. Mm -hmm. um, whereas ours is rice, but with beans like ladled uh, over. It's really a different kind of uh, dish. Right. I mean, I think that's true, but I also think that's the difference between the amount of beans that you might have. And I think there's so much plenty in America that you can have that many beans, but you might not have that many beans in other places. Plus if they're using fresh beans and they're cooking them in with the rice, as opposed to dried beans, then I also think that makes a difference. You don't put as many beans into the rice when they're cooked together. The one bit of heresy, isn't it true that red beans is like eaten in New Orleans? Don't come from New Orleans. Don't they import them like from New York State or something? So I, I don't know all the places where um, Hayward gets its, uh, its red beans, but um, having, they were certainly not something that were grown locally, but the idea of eating red beans is something that I think you can find across the, um, across even the top of South America. And it was brought by the Africans in, um, in Colombia, they eat red beans and rice. Um, and it was a, a, it's not fixed in the same way. And they use fresh beans, not dried beans, but it's nevertheless something that uh, was brought over by slaves actually bought in um, New Orleans. So enslaved people in New Orleans brought to, to Colombia. Let me think about um, what's considered to be a, a representative Southern dish, and that's shrimp and grits. Now, okay. shrimp and grits, now you've lived here all your life, right? Now, all your life, you haven't seen shrimp and grits on menus in New Orleans or in New Orleans area. It's maybe been the last couple of decades that you started seeing it. Well, even though I understand it's a, a Southern dish, but I started seeing it. And so once it started popping up, and I said, what's this shrimp and grits? And I said, oh, this is what they eat in Charleston. This is like the, you know, the Southern East Coast. So the couple of times I tried it, I didn't see anything special. I mean, shrimp and grits in themselves aren't really purveyors of flavor. It depends what you're mixing in there. But when I've tried them here, I didn't see what was so special about shrimp and grits. And I gotta tell you that last fall, I was in Charleston and the restaurant had shrimp and grits. I said, okay, let's see what the, what the pros do. That shrimp and grits, it was a good dish. It was a totally different dish. And one thing is it had sausage in it, uh, which kind of surprised me. I didn't realize that what uh, we, we had here. But anyway, shrimp, I, I guess this is a long way of saying, what do you think about shrimp and grits? <laughs> well, I mean, I like shrimp and grits, 
Um, I am not a fan of grits that are like overladen with cream cheese and all kinds of other things, because then I think you can't even taste that it's grits anymore. Um, but I do, I do think shrimp and grits is, is something really good. And I would think that having sausage in it would make it even better. Well, it does, it does, but, 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 but I don't see it served, the sausage served here with it. I mean, here it's really just shrimp and grits. Uh, well, it's, it's, it has to evolve a little bit. I mean, it's, I agree with you. I think it's new to New Orleans as a concept. And so people have to play with it for a little while because, before they make it their own. Right. The, um, all right. So we have Southern food. Can I just stay on, on Southern food for a moment because I want to talk about local. And you mentioned fried things like fried chicken would be a real, a real Southern thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Totally totally fried things everywhere. Um, I think in other parts of the South, not really Louisiana, um, that stewed vegetables often are sweetened, like they might uh, make carrots and put sugar in them or uh, stewed tomatoes and put sugar in the tomatoes and even sweet potatoes are made extra sweet with marshmallows and, um, and brown sugar and such. And I don't think that here in uh, New Orleans, we have quite the, the need to sweeten things. And obviously we don't drink sweet tea the way they do in other parts of uh, the South. And so I, I make the, the distinction between the, uh, the French and the Spanish not having the same sweet tooth as the English. I'm glad you mentioned sweet tea because this is a, a point of contention here, all right. I grew up on sweet tea. I mean, I just like all tea because that's the way my mama fixed it. I mean, I mean, it was always, always sweetened. And then all of a sudden they're into this phase where you go to a restaurant and you started asking, well, sweet or unsweetened? You know? I mean, I don't remember as a kid having a choice. I mean, it was just like all tea was naturally sweet tea. But, but then you're starting to see unsweetened tea very much. And then, um, so I was at some dinner and I was talking to somebody who was a local writer and we're talking about sweet tea and he was saying well yeah sweet tea is more of a southern thing than it is around the rest of the country and i asked him why why is sweet tea more popular in the south um than other places and he said and i'm quoting the baptists okay because <laughs> and uh i mean without hesitating all right you know because the baptists don't drink as heavily okay you know they don't drink alcohol and so they kind of compensate I don't know if this makes sense, but that's what he said. Well, I mean, that certainly may be possible. I also think that in the South, sugar was available. And so um, that also was um, something that uh, affected the cost of sugar. And in the North, you know, I, I think sugar was really expensive. And um, so, and the process of making sugar out of beets is a lot different than um, what it is to get sugar out of sugar cane. So um, you can't grow sugar cane in the North. So I think sugar was just much more expensive, but it's also very possible that, um, that people who don't drink um, alcohol might want their, their beverages very sweet. I find that 
even uh, lemonade is is oversweetened in, in many parts of the South because um, I I can't even I mean I can't drink sweet tea I just think it's way 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 too sweet. Yeah, just as an aside, um, probably familiar with Point Coupe Paris, which is like where New Rose is. That's probably the best the best known town. That, that we were talking to an agriculture guy. And he was talking about sugarcane and about sugarcane growing into the Caribbean and then uh, eventually moving in and into South Louisiana and all this. But he says that the northernmost point where sugarcane grows is Point Coupe Parish. Uh, beyond that, I don't know. Well, it, you know, they've, they've been um, working genetic magic on sugarcane, trying to expand its you know, the, uh, the band around the world that creates the right environment for growing sugarcane. And I think they've made a little bit of headway, but not much. I mean, it really has to be warm for sugarcane to make it. All right. Um, you mentioned cornbread. Cornbread uh -huh. and rice are really a good, a good thing to have. Especially with, with a lot of butter over it and everything. So. Yeah, cornbread yeah, is a little southern thing. Yeah, that's very southern. Biscuits are southern, um, and uh, I think uh, you know there's there are many things that I think when you see them you know they're southern. Um, different because it was so agricultural, there was a kind of a no waste policy. So different parts of animals continued to be used. Um, and uh, so you, you had people, you know, you, you see at a boucherie or whatever, we eat hogshead cheese and we use um, the shanks and the tails and the pig ears and all of that, the cheeks um, to, to cook with. And, um, and it always finds its way into various kinds of greens and uh, as I say, in a hogshead cheese, because nobody wanted to do to waste. And I think that's a very agricultural attitude, uh, partly because going to a store or finding a store was often not even possible. So you had to grow everything yourself or make it yourself. If you had a hole in your pot, you had to wait till the itinerant tinkerer came to you so that you could get it fixed. So you might then have be down a pot. If you had two pots, now you only have one pot. So everything has to be cooked in the same pot until the tinkerer comes. Um. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, you know, it occurs to me that uh, maybe it's all of the South and Louisiana, the pig in terms of like the boucherie, I mean, it's uh -huh. just sustenance. It's uh, part of a social event. Uh, Absolutely. That mm -hmm. there are a lot of, uh, I mean, I've seen Louisiana, like, like there are a lot of schools or churches that have fundraisers, which will be a boucherie. Um, you know, and you come and you buy a, you know, you go on Saturday and you buy a plate for a, for your Sunday dinner and it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that. And it's nice having those uh, communal meals and communal events. It's, it's very much part of keeping a community together, I think, which is great. Do you like cracklings? I do like cracklings very much. <laughs> I agree. I, I mean, I think cracklings are good. It's not something you want to eat every day. All right. I mean, sure. 
Yeah, like yeah. maybe, I don't know, maybe one or two a month or something, okay? But when it's warm and it's kind of kind of soft and kind of sweet and a little salty and all that, yeah, they, uh, it could be really good. Yeah, I mean, anytime you get to eat fried fat, it's a good yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what's your favorite, what's your favorite food that you think is uh, Southern or uh, not Southern, but even just Louisiana or New Orleans? What's your very favorite? Hmm. Um, boy, I put my spot here. Uh, I think, um, well, it sounds a little snobby, but they'll be okay. I don't mean it to be because I don't have very long. But the classic fish dish, like like with the Antoines would do with pompano. Uh-huh. Okay. I mean, pompano is a good tasting fish. Now you just you just don't run to the store and pick up pompano. All right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. But when it's done right and in, in the right setting with people who know what they're doing, and when they do it, the pompano on pompadette with the in the bag and all that. I mean, I mean uh -huh. that's really uh, that's really a great dish. Um fortune is not limited to just that, but with uh, but yeah, but I think just classic uh, fried chicken when done right is really a, you know, it, it, it's really good. You know, Popeyes kind of redefined fried chicken. Uh, you know, before Al Copeland and Popeyes, people didn't think of fried chicken as always been like really, really spicy, but uh -huh. but he really made it spicy. And I'd, I'd say I guess, I guess for the most part better. He certainly uh, pushed Colonel Sanders off the map uh, with it. Um, a good gumbo. And the thing about gumbo is that there's so many different varieties of it. You know, there's so many different different types of it. Uh-huh. And uh, I always make the point as much as I can if I go to a restaurant, if they have gumbo, just at least get a cup of gumbo. It's kind of like an ongoing research trying to find uh, the perfect gumbo. And, well, you uh, know, the you know the perfect gumbo is never at a restaurant. The perfect gumbo is at your mother's house or at your grandmother's house or at your aunt's house or at your house. Um it's it's never going to be perfect at the restaurant. Yeah, well, I can pretty much assure you it's not in my house. Okay, all right. <laughs> but, the, um, um, but the thing between okay, let me get between meat gumbos and seafood gumbos, which do you prefer? Well, I guess the if it's if it would be a, a seafood gumbo, there there are some seafood gumbos that I just think are absolutely the best, and I would probably want that over a meat uh, or a chicken or whatever gumbo um, all the time. But I am a fan of my own turkey bone and andouille gumbo that I make after mm -hmm. Thanksgiving every year. Mm -hmm. And instead of putting a scoop of rice in it, like I, this is like for Friday, you know, after, yeah. after Thanksgiving, and it's a way to use up all the leftovers. I always make a, a cornbread and oyster stuffing or, mm -hmm. or, or dressing for the, um, for the, for Thanksgiving. And then I make enough extra that I always have leftovers so that I can scoop a scoop of the dressing into the gumbo. And so then you have oysters in it too. And it's really, really good. Oh, okay. Let me get this straight. So it's turkey bone, which delivers all that flavor there. And then andouille. And then uh, andouille. And then the dressing. Yes. All together. That, yes. that sounds really, really good. 
it, it's it's always it's always fun and uh, one of my sons absolutely believes that that's the reason we have thanksgiving so that we can do that <laughs> well, well if i ate thanksgiving dinner at your house i wouldn't eat anything just so there'd be leftovers the next day with <laughs> <laughs> um, the um with the probably wouldn't be invited so we did um we so okay well now we're on the gumbo thing we, we may as well deal with this issue and then i want to uh, move on to kelly but the practice of putting sweet potato in gumbo. Do you believe that? So, I mean, I believe that it happens for sure, but um, it's not something that I do. Um, and I actually don't think it's a bad thing, but it's just, um, it's something that I think you don't get the best of the sweet potato. I'd rather have the sweet potato on the side. Okay. Well, let me say it's a good thing. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> And I'm not talking about a candy yam or something like that. I'm talking sure. about a sweet potato and you bake it and it's got that caramelized smell to it and all that. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Okay. And the advantage of it is especially, you know, when the gumbo is a little bit tangy, then you got the sweet potato, which is a little bit sweet. And so it kind of complements the gumbo taste. Yeah, and, yeah. And that's, mm -hmm. that's really good. And there are some places that put potato salad. Yes. In gumbo. Uh -huh. uh, I've heard like St. Martin Parish in particular. Uh, is a uh, uh, does potato salad, but yeah, to me it's a must. But it's uh, like okay, so we can do something here called this or that, in which we'll call in our executive producer Kelly here, and she's got this list, and all you got to tell is what your favorite is. Okay, take it <laughs> okay. away. All right. Well, you y'all took one of mine already. It was going to be sweet tea or unsweet tea, and so you both Sorry. have said your your own thing. So I changed it up a little. But I think we did resolve. <laughs> I think she was in favor of the unsweet tea, and I was in favor of sweet tea. It, yeah. Okay, so. That was it. All right, so the first one is rice or pasta? Pasta. Agreed. Agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, um, tomato sauce or brown gravy? Tomato sauce. Oh, I like I like that you know you don't have any question about it. Well, if you get some brown gravy and you put it on rice, you uh, you have more of an appreciation for rice. Um, okay, so I, I don't oh. I don't dislike rice. I understand. I just I I, I just prefer is, yeah no definitely yeah I mean it's... no we're not gonna get the rice industry after you know. <laughs> also, a carb is a carb. We don't. We That's don't right. <laughs> um, Tabasco or crystals? Oh my God. <laughs> um, okay, so this I, I I can't give you a yes or no or this or that answer because it, I use both of them and it depends on what I'm doing. If I'm just putting it on something like your somebody gives you a plate of red beans and rice and they you can put some hot sauce on it. I probably put crystal, but if I'm cooking something, uh, especially if I'm cooking something sweet, like a spice cake or something like that, I would use Tabasco. Interesting. Oh, it is. So what's the difference that, that you're looking for between the two? Because I think that there is a lot of development of flavor in the Tabasco because it's fermented and um, it's, it's aged in bourbon barrels. And so it has a real distinct flavor that's not only hot. Whereas I think that crystal gives you a nice kick of hot. And, um, um, and so 
sometimes you don't, that's all you want. You don't want that flavor that goes with it. Interesting. Yeah, that was a <laughs> That's the best answer I've ever heard that question. Okay. Uh, yeah, we've asked, we've asked that a couple of times and that was, that was a good one for sure. Um, okay, and the last one is gumbo or jambalaya? Oh, gumbo. For sure, yeah. Yes. You can do a lot more with gumbo. <laughs> yes. That's it from, you passed. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Martha, I know you probably ask this all the time, but you'll be asked one more time. The difference between Cajun and Creole. Uh, so I, I wanna say first that I think that the difference is diminishing all the time because of transportation and communication that, that is just getting um, more and more making us more hom homogeneous. However, um, if I had to, to talk about it historically, I would say that it's really the difference between rural food and city food. Um, if you're in a rural area and you don't have access to ingredients beyond what you can either forage or hunt or fish or grow, um, your food is going to be simple. You don't have maybe but one pot dishes. It doesn't mean that your food isn't excellent. It just means that your food is um, uh, doesn't have the benefit of as many ingredients. On the other hand, Creole food, here we were in New Orleans, a port city. We had so many things accessible to us, whether it was spices or uh, different kinds of foods. And so our food, I think, is what you might call more sophisticated, but that seems to make it better. And I don't think that that's the answer. It's not better, it's just different, but it's more nuanced. It has more layers of flavor um, and it's served in a way that is more um, sort of, you know, a, a, a meat or animal protein with, with uh, starch and sides as opposed to all together in one pot. Now that doesn't mean we don't have one pot dishes. We obviously have gumbo and jambalaya, but our jambalaya, for example, has tomatoes in it uh, in that, to make a Creole jambalaya and a Cajun jambalaya won't have tomatoes in it, but it was much harder to grow tomatoes in a swamp than it is to get tomatoes around New Orleans. And so they didn't have as much access to tomatoes. And so they don't use tomatoes in the same way. And we had an abundance of tomatoes so they could be added to different things. So I think that's really the way I would describe the difference. Um, the, all of the highly seasoned food that places like think, what is it, thank God, TGI Fridays or whatever says, oh, we're gonna put a lot of seasoning on this and call it Cajun um, and make it really hot. I don't believe that that's the way Cajun food originally was. And um, I think that there was a much more nuanced use of spices in New Orleans. Um, a good example of that is something like crab boil, where you have cardamom and mustard seeds and cloves and all kinds of seasonings in that crab boil that you wouldn't normally think of to put together if you were Cajun. 
um, and you were boiling crawfish. Now today, of course, you have zatarans available to you, so you can put it in your crawfish. But um, originally, those crawfish were bo boiled with salt and pepper and maybe garlic. And so it's just um, a different, uh, a different part, partly different access and availability. Plus, our food has been has been influenced by so many more. Um, ethnic groups that have settled in New Orleans. And so I think that makes a difference too. I think um, tomato would be one of the first things that comes to my mind when talking about Creole and Cajun. Uh, I mean, it's not just tomato, but, but yeah. I think you gave a, a beautiful explanation why, because tomatoes are so plentiful, like with Plaquemines Parish and St. Bernard right. and all of the, uh, the Creole tomatoes. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think it's a good example. Um, the, the, um, so when we're talking about the, the meat gumbos and the seafood gumbos, the, um, a seafood gumbo, when it has like oysters in it and they, and they become big, big plump kind of oysters and they, and the crab claw, I mean, it can really be good. Oh uh, yeah. I, th I think a meat gumbo ultimately delivers more, which raises one more question about gumbo. Okra feeling. Hmm. So I do like okra in my seafood gumbo, but I prefer filet in my meat gumbos. Wow, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I never had distinction. All right. Um, I like okra because it kind of thickens it. Just adds more yeah. more flavor to it. Yeah. But I never, but I never thought of it about um, seafood versus meat. Um, you know, a uh, filet has an actual flavor. Of yeah. course, okra has a flavor too. Um, and I think that if you use, I find that if you use filet and okra in your gumbo, oh, no. that you get, it's just too much. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I, I think that that kind of earthy flavor of filet goes well with uh, meat. Yeah, mixing filet, I, I think that's, that should be illegal. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, some foods, are we losing some foods uh, like bisque, like crawfish bisque, which is a, a very hard dish to make? I mean, right. some of those things just kind of passing away. Oh, I definitely think so. And I really, I can understand why. You know, um, before crawfish farming became prevalent in the 1970s, um, you know, especially in, in the New Orleans area, the crawfish had to be, you know, pulled up on strings and whatever from the little swampy areas. And so you wanted to stretch those crawfish. So you chopped them up and you mix them into a stuffing to go back into the head. And then you could use um, the shells that were left over to make a nice sauce and uh, a, a, a broth that formed the basis of your sauce. Uh, and so that was, that was a way to get crawfish flavor um, instead of just eating the crawfish directly. But now that you have masses of crawfish available to everybody, you can get pounds of crawfish for, uh, for just for you to peel and eat. Um, I think that the work involved in making crawfish bisque is gonna make people prefer, you know, if you like to eat crawfish, you don't want to have just these little bits in your yeah. bisque. Yeah. Is it true, and if so, does it make any difference that most of the um, 
like the peeled crawfish you get in the store would be from China? I think there is a lot of peeled crawfish from China and Vietnam, yes. Mm -hmm. It's not all that yeah. way, but they stick some Cajun sounding name on it to make it seem like it's from Louisiana. So you have to read the, the package to make yeah. sure. And if someone just wants to make like a crawfish stew or something where you just boil thing and dump it in, it's like an easy thing to do. But, um, you know, I, I think where you find real Louisiana crawfish is crawfish boils. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. They're, 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 right. uh, yeah, it's the real thing. Absolutely, you know. yeah. Yeah. You know, when you're talking about the, the seasoning and the Cajun food and that the early Cajuns didn't have a lot of seasoning, again, that's the Paul Prudhomme influence. Totally. Yes. Mm -hmm. He did what I call nouveau Cajun uh, in terms and in, in the place that he created his food and then that he established himself in the French Quarter in New Orleans, which is a high profile area with a lot of people passing by and he gets a lot of attention and he was good at, with the media himself that he really, he redefined uh, Cajun food. I, I definitely think that he did. And I also think that during the World's Fair, um, when there was the Louisiana Pavilion that had all of those booths in it with lots of food, you had food writers and travel writers coming to Louisiana, coming to New Orleans to check out the World's Fair and write about it. And in that pavilion, all of the food was together. So they ate this food in New Orleans. They were here for two days, at three days at most, and they had to sort of pick up everything they could about the food. And they didn't know where the food came from. And they didn't get to experience going to Lafayette or going to uh, uh, Rain or someplace like that to, um, to taste the difference between Creole and Cajun food. So they started to write articles in like Gourmet Magazine or Bon Appetit or whatever that said Cajun slash Creole food or Creole dash Cajun food. And so it all started to blur together even in um, a public uh, discourse. And I, I think you're right about Paul Prudhomme, especially we were aware of that here in, in the New Orleans area. But I think in the greater, uh, in the greater country, it was he was one of the influences. But I think that the World's Fair and all the writing that happened about food that people ate in Louisiana, they ate it in New Orleans at the pavilion, and they didn't know what they were eating. Well, just the creation of black and redfish, the term black and right there suggests you know, that there's there's something else going on with this redfish right here. And right. It was should as I mentioned a while ago, Al Copeland with Popeyes that um, uh, made the chicken spicy. Um, I want to ask you, I, I love talking about this. Uh, you got a few more minutes or? Uh, sure, uh-huh. Yeah, okay, the, um, your new cookbook about Italian, it's mostly Sicilian, right? Um, That's right, then, yes, it's Sicilian really, uh-huh. Okay. Um, okay, let me tell you Errol's theory, all right? Okay. And, and I'm the only one that holds this, I'm probably wrong, okay? that what really influences, uh, and I, I love you know, Southern Italian cuisine and Sicilian cuisine, and which has influenced the cuisine here. But the origin of that is Mount Etna in Sicily, which is a volcano. And there's also on the mainland, there's Mount Vesuvius, not all that far away, 
Uh-huh. You talk to these people and they say, well, yeah, when the volcanoes went off, they put all this, whether the potash and everything else, all the nutrients from the soil and all this, and you really develop real agricultural rings over the years or maybe over the centuries where those volcanoes went. And it's like mm-hmm. olives and tomatoes and all that. And so that, that those volcanoes were real influence on those kind of foods originally. And then people learn from them. And then, and then the fact that they're, you know, by the, by the Mediterranean helped also in terms of the, uh, uh, the supply. But, the weather, yeah. yeah. Well, I definitely think that the, the richness of the soil was definitely influenced by the volcanoes. And that's how Sicily became the breadbasket of Italy because um, it could grow almost anything. And, um, and, and they had a, a separation from Italy for a long time. Um, and so they were able to develop it themselves. And you know it could go on for a long time because you have to, for olives, for example, they have to be there for quite a while before they start producing. And um, they have hundred year old olive trees still producing in, in Sicily. And then again, there's bounty from the sea. And, and oh, absolutely. I mean, look what you got. You got, you got tomatoes, you got olive oil. Uh, you, have, you have all the other things that go with it. Right. And you have, you know, and dried pasta really developed in Sicily. And before that, almost everybody was eating fresh pasta all the time. And they developed this process of drying that allowed it to be shelf self stable. And then you could send it everywhere and you could keep it. Um, that it was a real innovation in, in food um, that happened in the 19th century. And in places like Central Grocery, um, you know, which is Sicilian, you get they had barrels full of dried pasta that people can go and make it. And so they come in with the new world. Uh, yes. You know, that happens a lot that things, and you see it especially with the Sicilian. Italians in different ways, that things that were traditional in the old country, almost better preserved in the new country. There is no question about that. I think um, it, what happens is whatever the culture was at the time that the, the immigrant comes gets preserved and almost ossified, whereas the country that they came from continues to change and evolve. And so I think that there are so many people who think, oh, this is Italian or this is Sicilian. You go to Sicily and it's a different country than you expect because it's changed over the period of time between when that immigrant ancestor got here and, and today. Well, I'll tell you the example that, that, that I've been just always interested in the St. Joseph's altar. Um, the, uh, I've been associated a couple of times and they, they asked people about St. Joseph's altars and it's like, they really didn't know much about it. It was like, they kind of heard about it and oh yeah, maybe in Palermo there's one or something, but there's not that much interest in it in Sicily. And you always hear, well, it started in Sicily because of St. Joseph, say that, okay. But in New Orleans, okay, the tradition was saved. First of all, by the old grandmas, uh, in the families. That, that's why I'm asking if, uh, if Nana ever did that. Now more and more by institutions like schools and churches. But it's saved here. And when you hear about other places in the country that have St. Joseph's altars, it's probably because of somebody who passed through New Orleans uh, at some point. 
um, but the kind of recipes that you see on there, the, the cakes, the confection, the, the lamb cakes, really, I mean, it's New Orleans that's the epicenter of saving. No, I, I think, I definitely think that New Orleans is the center of all the St. Joseph's altars in the U.S. Um, and it's because there were so many Sicilians who came here and settled here. Um, but I also think it's had to change, which everything changes. Um, it had to change because you have women going to work. And if you have to make thousands of cookies and all this food for the altar, you just don't have time to do it. And so you join together with others um, to do the altar. And then you have it in some church community center or something like that, because it makes it um, a lot easier to, to do it and for people to come and go. And, um, and I love kind of the secularization of the St. Joseph altar so that now uh, many, many people who are not of Sicilian descent and who are not Catholic are still interested in the altars and what they mean. And uh, they are becoming, you know, Mardi Gras is particularly secular, but it's certainly the day before Ash Wednesday. So it comes from a religious- Remind you of that, place. yeah. And, but, you know, I don't think you could ever say anymore that Mardi Gras is, is a religious day in New Orleans. And I think that St. Joseph's altars and then having St. Joseph's Day celebrated and combining it with the St. Patrick's Day celebrations around the same time, you have parades and all kinds of other things. It becomes, um, it becomes just a part of the culture of the city and not just something that's held by people of Sicilian descent. Your book has the recipe for something called arancini. Yes. Okay. I was delighted when I saw that because uh, I first experienced that over there on the other side. It's a, uh, it's kind of like a, a rice ball sort of, um, well, go, go ahead and define it. It's really good. Well, it is. It's a rice ball and it has something inside of it, either a big hunk of cheese or a piece of sausage or something like that. And um, it's certainly something easy to, to cat. It's fried and um it will stick together and you can take it with you like for lunch and then eat it. Um, and you have a lot of starch to fill you up. And um, I, I think that in some ways the arancini when it came to uh, New Orleans actually started to shore up Kalah because I think that there was a fading of people making kala. And now for those that know, kala is kind of like a, a bene-shaped rice dish, right? Yeah, it's like a rice fritter, yeah, or, yeah. but it's, yeah. and it's eaten sweet. So it's, it's pow powdered sugar is usually put on it. Or, um, and now, of course, they, they make savory versions of it. But um, I find that the savory versions of kala are a combination of what well, were kala and arancini. They're sometimes they're really just rice balls with something stuffed inside, and um, as opposed to batter, um, uh, making a batter, which is what it was originally. As you make the, the let the rice rise and ferment and and get um, into a batter. Now, I don't see 
arancini on many Italian menus in New Orleans. Hardly any. One they were street food. They what? were street food. Yeah. One place that does have it is Fausto's on Veterans. Uh-huh. Yeah, I recommend, okay. And uh, they serve it the right size and it's ladled with a tomato sauce on top. It's really, really good. Uh -huh. and, um, and so get that as an appetizer. They also do fish with kind of like a lemon sauce, which is, uh, and, and the lemon is really important to Sicilian cooking too. And Absolutely. So, yes. and so it's a place that does it. Um, part of your museum, it's called Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Let's talk about the and beverage part of it for a moment. Tell us some of your favorite New Orleans kind of mixed drinks. Well, I mean, I am definitely a fan of the Sazerac. Um, I um, really like the flavor. It's not too sweet. It has a nice bitter balance to it. And uh, I, I actually like absinthe and herb saint. So I love that anise flavor. And so that bouquet of of anise that you get when you drink it, you know, because it's in yeah. your glass. I really, really like that. So I would say if I had to pick one, that would be my favorite. But um, I, you know, I, I like uh, Ramish Gin Fizz. I like um, uh, a Milk Punch. Uh, you know, it's hard to go wrong with me <laughs> with alcohol. <laughs> you know, I thought you'd mention Negroni, hmm. which is an Italian yes. dish, okay? And you love this, it's an acquired taste. Okay. Yes. The first time yes. you have a Negroni, you might not say, well, this is great. But like the second and third time, yeah, it's good. Yeah, you know, so. I think a Negroni is really, really good. I wouldn't call it so much a New Orleans cocktail, um, but, uh, but I definitely like them. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're right. Yeah. If you keep it on, on the primitive of uh, New Orleans, definitely Sazerac would be, uh, would be the one in them. Uh, and it's so great that it's all headquartered here. I mean, the people, I mean, um, you know, not only are they making the liquor, but, but, but they're making the, the bitters that go with it too. I mean, you know, yes. I mean it's the it's, it's, uh, same company. The one little thing with boozing that I'm kind of going through is that there was this big phase when people were starting to drink more wine, which I guess I did too. And wine's okay, I have no problem with wine. But increasingly I'm finding cocktails to be more interesting. The mm -hmm. one is, I mean, you know, someone pours you a glass of Chablis, okay. And, uh, you know, it's got the, the flavor of walnuts and peaches. I'll always taste that. But at least with cocktails, there's things you can talk about, you know, that are part of it, about the different. I just find this, I don't know, more and more I'm kind of gravitating towards cocktails. I, I think in my family, growing up, of course, I was given wine from being a child. Now, it was often watered down. And then the older you got, the the sure. more wine there was compared to water and wine was food. It wasn't something that you sat around and drank the way people sit around and drink a number of glasses of wine. Wine was drunk with food and it was food. And so if you wanted a cocktail, the cocktail was a cocktail. And then you drank that because it was, um, you wanted to enjoy something to drink. Um, that was alcoholic. Okay. And so I think that's kind of what you're describing, that if you have wine with your meal, then it all goes together and one complements the other. Good but point. when you just drink wine by itself, 
you you lose the the food component and i think when you drink a cocktail it's designed to be drunk by itself and so it's more satisfying that's a good point okay so if you just at a, at a bar and you order a glass of wine uh it's not going to do as much as it would be if it was part of a meal that's right yes okay. and so I, I think you're what you're sensing is that missing part yeah it's very good okay yeah yeah i think it's a good point uh tell us a little bit about your book what should we look for well um it's it's a book that i wrote because i was experiencing that uh, thing that everyone does who is um who knew their immigrant grandparents um there was a sense of an immigrant community where people were speaking Sicilian, they were singing Sicilian songs at parties and all of that. And that goes away as those people die out. And so my own children and grandchildren don't have nearly the connection that I do. And I'm not first generation, my mother was born here, but I did know my grandmother who came from Sicily. And so I wanted- my, my grandmother came from Palermo and my grandfather was from a, a place called um, Villafranca. Okay. And uh, so, which was a much smaller place. And um, I wanted to document that. I wanted to document the stories and how it affected our lives to be part of this Sicilian community. And I also wanted to share the food and how the New Orleans food changed in my house because of the Sicilian uh, connections, but also how the Sicilian food changed because of being here in New Orleans. And so that's why I wrote the recipes. And I think that almost every immigrant experiences this. I don't think it's unique to Sicilians. It's just there were so many Sicilians in New Orleans that we actually changed the food of New Orleans. Um, you know, if you have a small group of people, they don't have the same degree of influence because they just don't have the numbers. Yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to document that because the farther away from it we get, it becomes harder to find a first person document that documents it. It then becomes just historical references. And I wanted it, this to be a first person document. I experienced this. And so that's why I wrote it. It's actually my first cookbook um, yeah. because mostly I just write long essays and historical uh, pieces about culture and how it developed. But this, this one, I thought that the recipes would illustrate what I was talking about, so. Is there any one dish in particular you'd recommend if we had time to make one dish? So one thing that I think um, would be a whole lot of fun and it's really easy because it reflects many things about the Sicilians and that's alyata. So alyata, and it's not a meat dish, alyata is a bread-based olive oil spread. And it is like a substitute for mayonnaise. And I think that if you ever made a Creole tomato sandwich and put mayonnaise on it, if you put alyata on it, it would be even better. Um, but you know, the Sicilians didn't throw anything away and they saved their bread. And so you find bread in everything. 
One of the reasons, for example, in New Orleans, we stuff our vegetables with breadcrumbs is because of the Sicilian influence. Otherwise, it would be stuffed with rice. And uh, if you go to South Carolina and you get stuffed vegetables, it will be stuffed with rice. Mm -hmm. And so um, this is bread that's wet and then whipped with olive oil and garlic and lemon juice. And it emulsifies like um, mayonnaise and gets white like mayonnaise. And um, you just spread it on things. And you can put it on fish or you could put it on um, say a, a cold, cold chicken salad or something like that. It would be really, you, you would like it. Oh, I'm sure. I like it already. Um, yeah, when you talk about the, uh, uh, the stuffing vegetables, of course, it comes to mind the stuffed artichokes. Sure. Know, it, it was really a, a, a classic um, part of it. Um, and we should mention, in case anybody's thinking, okay, that the uh, one, one dish associated with the Sicilians um, that shouldn't be is muffaletta, that the muffaletta was invented in New Orleans. Is that correct? Well, I don't think that it was invented in New Orleans. Um, if you go to Sicily, even today, you can get a muffaletta loaf, which is a round loaf that's covered with um, sesame seeds at any bakery in Sicily. So that's um, the bread. That's the bread. Yeah. So it became called a muffaletta because that's what the bread was called. And um, the idea of putting layers of cheese and cold cuts and using olive oil or olive salad to moisten it the way we might use mayonnaise or something to moisten the bread, that this was taken out to the fields. Um, it, it, sometimes you would have people take out some of the bready part of the inside so that you had more room in there and you could put the lid back on and press it and it would be easy to hold and eat. What I think was invented in New Orleans is just the overstuffing of it um, where you have layer, 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 layer and you have this big sort of thing. And probably because that was something that was going around the, the U.S. at that time, sort of the Dagwood sandwich, where you had this sandwich that was built mm -hmm. up this high. And so I think that this sense of abundanza and generosity and whatever that that, that represented, that part of it may come from New Orleans, because I don't think anything like it that you would get in Sicily would be this tall. Yeah. Um, but the idea of actually layering cold cuts and cheese and using olive salad to bind it together is not something that was invented here. And the key, of course, would be uh, olive salad. The legend, well, of course, there's all kinds of legends, was that it was some salesman who'd go to Central Grocery and, um, and he would ask them, look, I want, I want to fix a sandwich, you know, get this muffled of bread and fix it like this. And so they were responding to what he was suggesting and it kind of became famous, but who knows? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I really think that that kind of food is a real social invention and nobody one day wakes up and invents it. But I also think that journalists and other people always try to find a point of origin. And so they want a story that, that tells the, the story instead of it just evolved. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of hard to, to build from just evolution, yeah. Um, Okay, well, this has been great. Thank you very much. Oh, and well, then, thank you. okay, well, can you give me the title of the book again? 
The title of the book is Nana's Creole Italian Table, Recipes and Stories from Sicilian New Orleans. Is it in bookstores yet? It is absolutely in bookstores. And if somebody comes to the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, I'll sign it for them. Okay. And I, I assume it's on websites too, like- It's on Amazon and any place you can buy books online. Yeah, all, yes. all those kind of places, okay. Well, this was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Well, what's the next book gonna be? Well, I'm, the, the next book is actually called The SoFab Cookbook, and we're coming to the end of putting it together, and it's about to go to the publisher. And it's going to be recipes um, from all the friends and people that we know that visit the museum, as well as tell a little bit about the story of the museum and how it was started. That'll be out next year. Okay. I'll go back to some of the other thing for a second. Okay. Sure. So, so I understand what you're saying about things evolve. Okay. But still, there is something, there is some point that makes this thing recognized. Yes. You know, uh -huh. and it's just not evolving all the time. There is something that happens that says, you know, somebody puts up a sign saying, try this sandwich. You know, we call it the muffaletta. You know, it may have evolved, but that's the point right there. With it. And, and that may have happened at, at Central Grocery, that idea of let's sell this as a special thing. Um, but, you know, even that is being, is evolving. For example, at Napoleon House, they heat them so that you get melted cheese. And um, it's, you know, it's always, it's always changing. People are giving their own little twist to things. I've seen uh, muffalettas with fresh basil leaves put into it instead of something like lettuce you get fresh basil leaves and it gives it a really kind of fresh taste so there's always change absolutely thank you very much let's do this again this one okay let's Thank thanks so bye. much bye. bye thanks for listening to louisiana insider subscribe like and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at louisiana life mag Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.